the scripture's a long one this morning, so you're going to have to pay attention. Uh, Psalm 72. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Saba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And I have the great pleasure of praying for our pastor. Lord, we thank you for Pastor Robin and we lift him to you now. We ask, Lord, that you will touch his heart and that, Lord, that you will speak through him this day. You will anoint his words, Lord, that you will give him the right attitude and the right words. And, Lord, you will open our hearts to receive, Lord, what it is that you want us to hear. May we be transformed more and more into your likeness this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is the third message um, in a short series that I'm doing this month called Songs for the King. It's in the, um, there's 10 psalms in the book of Psalms that are generally recognized as royal psalms. And so this is a short series. We're looking at four of them this month. Um, two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 2 and it's promised that 
God is in control, even when it seems that everything's falling apart around us. Uh, last week we looked at Psalm 20, and we talked about the king's role in warfare, which was basically to trust God for the victory. And we applied that to our, our own struggles and our own lives, and about trusting God for victory in those areas. This week we'll look at Psalm 72, and see what it has to teach us about leadership. Specifically in the political realm, because this, is, this psalm is about the king, but also more widely, leadership more generally, okay? And we'll be taking a thematic approach. Normally I take a passage and I work my way through it. And this is a poem, so it bounces back and forwards. Um, so we'll take a thematic approach and we'll look first at the basic qualifications for leadership. Then we'll look at what the psalm expects the outcomes from good leadership to be. And then we'll look at what's left and how that points us to Jesus, okay? So there's a, this is a trigger alert, okay, for everybody. I'm going to be talking about politics, okay? Um, because that's what the psalm is about. I'll try to be as generic as possible so I don't um, unnecessarily offend people. Um, but I'm not going to shy away from the issues the text raises, okay? I'll try and do my best, Okay. <laughs> You're obviously English. <laughs> so, first of all, let's talk about actually what the psalm constitutes, because not everything that was read for us this morning is actually part of the poem, right? The original poem is verses 1 through 17. Verses 18 and 19 are a doxology that's attached to the end of the psalm because it's the last psalm in the second book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is divided into, into five sections, five books. 1 to 41, 42 to 72, 73 to 89, 90 to 106, and 107 to 150. I didn't memorize that, I wrote it down. Um, the last psalm in each of those sections has a doxology attached to it, except Psalm 150, and the whole psalm is a doxology to close off the whole book, okay? So here in Psalm 72, Verses 18 and 19 are a doxology that's there to close off the second book of the, in, in the collection of the Psalms. And verse 20 is clearly an editorial note that says this is the end of this section of Psalms. Right? right? Um, so we're not going to talk about those this morning because that's not actually the, the, the poem itself. Except to note that Psalm 20 suggests, sorry, verse 20 suggests that this was a prayer of David for his son Solomon at the beginning of his, his reign. So the off Solomon at the beginning might be better translated as for Solomon or about Solomon. Apart from that, we're just going to talk about the poem about the upright king, okay? So the first two verses of the psalm lay out the basic qualifications for leadership. In this case, it's leadership of a country, but qualifications apply to pretty much all, any position of leadership, whether it's in politics or business or education or the church or anywhere. Because what the psalm is addressing isn't technical competence. Okay? It's not addressing whether or not someone has the skills to do the job. What the psalm is addressing is character. Because you can have all the technical competence in the world, but as the Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, character is destiny. 
So verse 1. Endow the king with your justice, O God, your, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. So these are the basic requirements for leadership. Justice and righteousness. Not vision or management skills or a charismatic personality or a great speaking uh, ability or well, any of the other many other things we often associate with leaders. They're helpful. But the basic requirements for leadership are simple. And they have to do with character. They're justice and righteousness. Now, those are powerful words. They're part of the character of God. But what do they really mean when you apply them to a human being? The word translated here as justice, mishpat, appears 424 times in the Old Testament. That kind of makes it a major theme, right? The Bible dictionary describes it as a state or condition of fairness in disputes. And the king was expected to act as a judge and dispense justice. 2 Samuel 8.15 says that David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. And we see Solomon acting in that regard in the story of the two women arguing over whose baby had died. In 1 Kings 3.28 says, When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. So justice is primarily about managing disputes in a way that leads to a fair outcome. So if justice is about how a leader deals with the people around him, particularly conflicts between others, Righteousness is about that leader's own behavior. It's defined as blameless behavior, honesty, doing what is required according to a standard. Which, by the way, why, is why uh, when old, you know, old Testament writers like Job or the psalmist claim to be righteous, and we coming from our evangelical background apply that as a very religious term. We think you know, righteousness is about our, our relationship with God. But actually, in the Old Testament, it's a much broader term. And it basically means someone who is honest, truthful, and above board in all they do. Which is why, you know, sometimes we feel a bit, how can, how can Job claim to be righteous? You know, no, doesn't it say no one is righteous? Well, actually, it's a different way of using the word. He's, he's saying that he, you know, he's, he's, he's been honest and truthful and above board in all that he does. And the examples he gives are examples of that. So these are the two basic requirements for leadership. That a leader is fair in how he or she treats other people and in how he or she deals with competing in interests and conflicts. And that a leader's personal conduct is honest, truthful, and above board. That doesn't mean that they have to be perfect. Okay? David is the model king in the Old Testament. And he's certainly not perfect, right? I mean, he committed adultery with another man's wife and then arranged for the man's murder to cover up his crime, right? So he's clearly not a perfect guy. What makes him a good leader is that when he's confronted with his sin, he admits it and he accepts the consequences. In this case, the death of the son that was born of that relationship. Gordon MacDonald had a big influence on my early Christian life. 
So I was deeply disappointed in 1987 when he resigned as president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship after confessing that he was, quote, involved in an adulterous relationship in late 1984 and early 1985. He said, Gail, that's his wife, and I would wish this board and our companions in ministry to know how sorry we are that we have so badly hurt the Lord and his people. I need your forgiveness. He went on to say that he, quote, had hoped for a long period... For a long period, having taken all the biblically defined steps that call for confession, repentance, and restoration, the tragedy of my past would be over and buried. But when rumors about this matter began to circulate in the past weeks, I knew that I must withdraw from InterVarsity's leadership for the best interests of a great organization. That's what integrity in leadership looks like. Taking responsibility for failure and accepting the consequences. McDonald was eventually restored into ministry, which, just by the way, the purpose of discipline is to restore people. It's not to punish them, okay? That's the purpose of discipline. It's to restore people. It's not to punish them. And so, yeah, just, that's, that's just an aside. Okay. So the remainder of the first two stanzas identifies, uh, sorry, the remainder of the first answer identifies two main results that the psalmist expects to see come from good leadership. Prosperity and the protection of the weak. Verse 3. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressors. So the second and fifth stanza focus on prosperity, while the fourth stanza stands of focuses on protection of the weak. We'll look at prosperity first. Verse 3. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. Verse 6. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound until the moon is no more. And verse 16. May grain abound throughout the land on the tops of the hills. May it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. These are all parallelisms. Where you say the same thing twice in two different ways. Which means that verse 3 says that prosperity is the fruit of righteousness. Specifically in this case, this verse, it's the fruit of righteousness and leadership. So how does that work? How does having someone in leadership who is blameless, honest, and does what is right according to a standard, how does that actually lead to prosperity? Well, in the context of ancient Israel, it meant that God's representative, the king, was behaving in ways that reflect God's own character. And so God was free to bless the nation with prosperity. Because clearly, the king cannot make the rainfall, which is what the image is in verse 6, but God can make the rainfall, right? So that's fine for ancient Israel. How does that apply to us? Well, I like to say that we live in a moral universe. That God has structured the universe in such a way that in general, you don't have to be a nation in covenant with him. You don't even have to be a believer. For righteousness and justice to have its own good outcome. I'll say that again. You don't have to be a believer. 
You don't have to be in covenant with God. Just to live righteously and justly. God has designed the universe in such a way that that has its own good fruit. So when a leader of a nation or a company or any other institution acts in a way that is just and righteous, they actually set an example for everyone else. They establish the moral tone of whatever it is they're leading. So if you have a leader who is just and fair with their people, the people themselves will be encouraged to be just and fair with each other. And research shows that social capital, the degree to which people trust each other and trust institutions, is a major factor in the production of prosperity. Not least because people don't have to pay exorbitant amounts of money to insurance for insurance and lawyers in a litigious society where no one trusts each other. Francis Fukuyama, the conservative um, political scientist, has a whole book on this called Trust, Social Virtues and the Creation of Prosperity. It's really interesting. Conversely, if you have a leader who's untrustworthy, who lies, who breaks the rules and doesn't take responsibility, I'm going to name names here. Because I'm British, I can talk about Boris Johnson. Um, I could bunch mention a bunch of others, but I'm British, so I can talk about Boris Johnson. You know, who, who breaks the rules, doesn't take responsibility, it's been all through, you know, yeah, that's who was fired from his job as a journalist because he lied and stole other people's material. Um, that's one of the, that's one of the, the draw, I, I'm a great believer in, in parliamentary democracy, but one of the drawbacks is that the leader of the country is chosen by just members of the party. Anyway, put that to one side. Uh, a leader like that telegraphs to everyone around him that the way to succeed is to be unjust and unrighteous. And they create a culture like that. That's why authority, authoritarian societies in which those in power seek to remain in power by any needs, any means are almost always also rife with corruption. Leaders set the tone. And corruption is the enemy of prosperity. So in general, assuming we're talking about people who have, you know, actually have the technical ability to, read, to lead, a righteous leader will result in a more prosperous nation or company, or institution, simply because they're working in harmony with the way that God has made the, the universe. As I, I, I did a series on Proverbs a number of years ago, and um, talked about Proverbs being about learning to live with the grain of creation. Because, you know, if you've ever gone against the grain with your hand, you get splinters, right? If you go with the grain, things go much easier. And so this is, this is what we're talking about here. We're talking about living with the grain of creation, the way God made creation. So much for the righteous leader. What are the results of having a just leader? Well, there's a lot, of justice, a lot about justice in this psalm. Verse 2, may he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May he defend the afflicted, verse 4, may he defend, defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. Verse 12, for he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. There's a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. 
And that is that the role of the just judge is to protect the poor and the weak from the rich and the powerful. When we think about God's judgment on Judah, sending them into exile, we tend to focus on it being for their idolatry. But it was equally for the systemic injustice of their leadership. Jeremiah 22.1 says, This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials, and your people who go, come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, who are the weakest members of society. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. The assumption in Scripture is that the rich and the powerful can look after themselves. If they have to go to court, they can hire the best lawyers in the land to, defend, to argue their cases. In some of our countries, the laws that govern how corporations operate are actually written by lobbying groups that are paid for by those very corporations. They're written to benefit the corporations, not the people. Meanwhile, the weak and the poor have very little access to those kinds of resources, if at all. But they're the ones who have to live with the consequences, whether it's cyanide in the water from gold mining or carbon dioxide in the air from pretty much everything else. And it's not just the wealthy in corporations. When, when I was pastoring an inner city church in, in Canada, I had an ambivalent relationship with the Children's Aid Society, what might be called Child and Family Services in other places. I was a middle-class Canadian with middle-class friends. Some of those friends were social workers who worked for the Children's Aid Society. I was also the pastor of an inner-city church and had women in my congregation who were in conflict with the Children's Aid Society over the custody of their children. And I saw the difference in how laws were applied. A kid falls out of a tree in a rural or suburban area and hurts himself. They get treated in emergency and sent home. A kid falls off the top of a, a garden shed in a poor area and someone calls Children's Aid on the mother. I had the notes from my meetings with a woman in my congregation subpoenaed by Children's Aid because they have full-time lawyers who can do that, right? Well, the mother had to rely on the duty legal aid lawyer on the day that she had to appear in court. Now, I deliberately didn't keep notes, so there was nothing to be subpoenaed. And in that case, actually, the judge told CAS that they had no right to spread their, their nets so widely. It was a fishing expedition in the hopes of finding something incriminating. And the mother and I were thankful for a just judge who upheld her rights. And that's what justice looks like in the Bible. Upholding the rights of the afflicted ones, the needy, the weak, those who suffer oppression and violence. Because the theory is that everyone is equal before the law. The reality is that the more money and power you have, the more equal you are. That was true in ancient Israel. Hear what the Lord has to say about it through Amos. 
This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Which is one of the best descriptions of the power of money to twist the law that has ever been written. And, plug, plug Wednesday, starting, starting the first Wednesday in, um, in September, we will be studying um, some of the minor prophets, starting with Amos, and uh, seeing God's heart for justice. And sadly, this is true in many cases today. And just to be clear, I think the agencies that protect children do a very important job. My point is about the power imbalance between the average person and big business or big government agencies and the necessity of leaders who are aware of that and who work against it, okay? So according to this Psalm, if you want a just and prosperous nation or a company or any other institution, the character of the person in leadership is the first priority. But what about their ideology? What about their policy priorities, their economic theories? Aren't those things more important than their character? Well, here's the thing. If you have a leader who's actually righteous and just, even if you disagree with their policies, you can respect their character. And they're often open to being convinced. We saw that in the story of Nathan confronting David. David responded well to the challenge. We saw that just a few years ago um, at the funeral in the U.S. for Senator John McCain, where people who disagreed fundamentally with him about politics spoke highly of his character. By the way, he's a book by him called Character is Destiny, if you're interested. Uh, and thank God there are still people in leadership in countries around the world who are bucking the current trend to demonize your opponents and stoke polarization, who are willing to work for the common good, even when it costs them. So we talked about the character of leadership. We talked about righteousness and justice. And we talked about the consequences of having people like that in leadership, prosperity and justice. There's one more theme that appears in the verses we haven't talked about yet. Verse 5, may he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. Verse 8, may he roll from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. In the original context of the psalm, these verses are, are hyperbole. They overstate their point to make it. The point is that the king's character will be so apparent to the nations around that they will recognize it. This is what happened with Angela Merkel in her final, final term as German chancellor when people started calling her the leader of the free world. That was probably a bit of hyperbole, but it made the point there was a person of character recognized as such by others around the world. How do we know these are hyperbole? 
Well, verse 5, may he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. That's not true of any human leader. No human leader is eternal. Verse 8, may he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. No Jewish king even had that extent of influence, never mind rule. Verse 11, may all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Also never happened. Verse 17, all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. This is actually an echo of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's, there's never been a human king on the surface of the earth who has blessed all, all nations, okay? So these are incredible things to say about any human king. They're hyperbole. But they're not incredible things to say about the eternal king, about the Messiah, Jesus. You see, the hope for a perfect messianic king grows throughout the time of the kingdoms of uh, Israel and Judah as people realize that very few of the actual kings ever lived up to the high standards in Scripture. So they set their hopes on a future king who would rule all of creation with righteousness and justice and whose, whose rule would result in peace and prosperity. That's a vision that Micah has in Micah 4. Micah is another one of the books we're going to be studying on Wednesday nights. <laughs> Plug. Anyway, uh, Micah 4 verse 2. Uh, many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk, walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. And no one, no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. This is the goal towards which history is moving. Jesus' righteous reign of peace and justice. And this is what gives us hope to work for the good today. We can work for the good today because we know where history is going. History is going to Jesus' righteous reign of peace and justice. In the meantime, though, we have to make the best decisions we, ha we can with the choices set before us. So I want to close by giving some suggestions about applying the principles of this psalm in our lives as citizens of our various countries. The first thing is that character is destiny. Emerson wrote, Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. As we look for leaders in the political world, but also in the business world or the world of Christian ministry, wherever your, your particular area of, of endeavor is, we need to make character our primary concern. That is to swim against the tide these days. The norm these days is becoming to argue that the end, our vision of society, a profitable company, whatever, justifies the means. And so we end up with leaders who lie, engage in character assassination, and traffic in fear 
rather than a positive vision of the future. So first thing, character is destiny. Second thing is, government can be a vehicle for good. Now, I know there's a stream of political thought that's very popular amongst Christians that argues that government is a necessary evil and that, quote, the best government is that which governs least. That's actually at odds with the Bible's view of government. Because in a monarchy, the king is the government. And the king in scripture is entrusted with protecting the weak against the strong and protecting the poor against the rich. That is a much better and a much more biblical standard to measure our governments by. Who benefits from their rule? The rich and the powerful or the poor and the weak? Thirdly, in the midst of all of this mess that we have to live in, we can find hope in our expectation of Jesus' return to establish his perfect kingdom of peace and justice. That's what gives us the energy, the encouragement to work in the meantime for the good, to achieve whatever small steps we can in that direction until he returns. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, Lord, we look forward to your great coming kingdom. You are the perfect king. The one who rules with righteousness and justice and brings prosperity and protects the weak. Lord, none of us live in a society like that. Not yet. We look forward to that under your, your reign. In the meantime, Lord, we ask for the grace, first of all, to do whatever small things we can to reflect that kingdom in our daily lives, in how we treat other people, in how we ourselves live, whether we're leaders or not. Lord, help us to reflect the values of your kingdom in our lives and to work for the good for all those around us. And Lord, help us to be so immersed in your vision of your vision for humanity and your vision for good leadership that we are able to assess those who come and ask for our loyalty. Give us grace, Lord, to make good decisions in those things. Help us, Lord, to be people of discernment in all that we do. And Lord, as we're talking about politics, we pray for Kenya. Um, as their election was just on Tuesday, I think. Um, and it's being challenged by the, the loser. Lord, we pray for a peaceful solution to that situation. And Lord, we pray for the conflict that's going on uh, to the north of us in Ukraine. And Lord, we pray for a solution to that conflict that is just as well as peaceful. And we pray particularly, Lord, that cool heads would 
prevail and that the agreement for inspectors to go and inspect the nuclear power station there would, would be followed through on and that that would not, there's such a risk of a nuclear catastrophe there. So we pray against that. Lord, we pray for the, the victims of that war, particularly the orphans from Ukraine who are now living here in Antalya, but also elsewhere in Europe, Israel, other places. Lord, we pray that they will thrive in their new locations and there will be many who will teach and care for them and show them God's love. Lord, we pray for the extreme weather situations that we see every day in the news. Drought, forest fires, flooding, rivers that are shrinking. Um, the Rhine has dropped so low that some barges can't travel down it. Lord, and the impact it has on the lives of people and the, the, the hardship involved. Lord, we pray that you would send rain on the, these dry, dry places, recognizing that often these days when there is rain, there's too much of it. So we just ask for moderation in the climate, Lord, we pray. And we pray for the church here in um, Turkey, Lord, you continue to be a ble- it would continue to be a blessing to those around. And we pray for this joint worship and prayer service that's planned for October 1st. And for Samuel, who's taking the lead in that. Lord, would you, would you make that a wonderful evening of fellowship together across cultures, across languages, that we might truly reflect the diverse kingdom of God here in Antalya. In your name we pray. Amen. As I've done for the last couple of weeks, I'm going to invite us all to say the Lord's Prayer in your mother tongue. Um, And so let's pray together, shall we?